Greetings and welcome to the After Act podcast, where we explore improvisation through conversations with remarkable artists. I'm Daniel Burkholder, a dancer currently based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and thanks so much for joining me for this episode. In this episode, I talk with Mark Chalfont, the Artistic and Executive Director of Washington Improv Theater. I've known Mark for many years, but this is really the first time we've really spent time talking about improvisation. Here's, here's a little bit about him, his bio. Mark Chalfont is, as I said, the Artistic and Executive Director of Washington Improv Theater, otherwise known as WIT, a mission-driven not-for-profit, performing and teaching throughout D.C. and based at The Source. Since helping to refound the company in 1998, Marcus spearheaded Wit's robust growth into a teeming community of collaborative creativity and transformative impact for people throughout the DMV. For those of you not from the DMV, the DMV is DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Wit serves over 23,000 audience members, and the company's comprehensive long-form improv classes enroll nearly 1,600 students each year. Mark is a founding cast member of Wit and Company Ensemble, iMusical, now in its 11th year, and regularly directs, teaches, and facilitates workshops for Wit at Work, Wit's organizational training arm. Twice honored with an Artist's Fellowship Grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities, Mark is a member of the Leadership Greater Washington's Class of 2017. Mark lives in Columbia Heights, which is a neighborhood in D.C., with his partner, David Stibe. So please check out the show notes for links uh, for more information about Mark. Here's my conversation with him. Enjoy. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Happy to be here. Great. Um, it's It's been a while since we've seen each other, but certainly when I lived in D.C., I loved coming to Wit Productions and, and seeing the performances and was always um, thrilled and and. Uh, entertained and amused and and even at times uh, offered things to to think about um, afterwards um, kind of bigger subjects and 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 what have you um, but before we kind of get started um, you know most of my personal experiences with improvisation and dance and and I've worked with a lot of musicians who also improvise but um, other than being an audience member I'm not as familiar about what happens inside improv theater um, and I'm sure some people listening aren't either. So I'm wondering if we could just start with you talking a little bit or defining even what you think of when you think of um, improv theaters. Sure. Uh, it's funny. You spend years doing something, but then uh, when you have to actually boil it down to a few words, uh, it's challenging. I think, I think improv theater, it's no different from uh, from typical theater, except the the expectations from the audience um, and from the performers are different mm -hmm. um, since there's no, since there's no script, obviously um, there's a certain kind of tension in the audience uh, because they are aware that they're seeing this being created uh, and, you know, essentially performed and edited as it goes. Yeah. So um, there's, there's a, a level of engagement that that, uh, whatever you call it, anxiety, uh, uh, concern, um, and genders, um, which, which is great because theater where the audience is more engaged is always going to be sort of more, I think, powerful and energized theater for the performers. It's about really tremendous listening. Um, that's, that's what you have to be more than anything to improvise theater is you have to listen because 
you don't want to waste anything. You want to see and honor and build upon every offer that anyone else is making uh, toward a scene or toward a moment. Um, and the, the better you get at listening, the more economical and seamless the performances will be, uh, typically. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's what I think improv is. It's listening and building together. Yeah, so that's that's great. Um, I mean, you know, I, if if I was talking about dance improv, um, it wouldn't be that different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would. We're not working from choreography uh, or or set material, um, but we're we're creating and editing and organizing um, as we as it happens, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, one term you used um, as you were talking, which is actually a term I had written down, is the term offer, mm. and that's not a term that I. Uh, that that's in my you know vocabulary uh, when I'm thinking about improv or talking about improv, and I, I mean I have a sense of maybe what it is, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what is an offer and and that idea of accepting offers and stuff like that. Sure, um, I think an offer can literally be anything in improvisation if mm-hmm. your scene partner observes it and hmm. focuses on it and reacts to it. Um, but typically, in a lot of improvisation, that might be starting with a premise. Um, you, that, that offer is going to be sort of what's what's the unusual thing um, happening in the scene? What's what's the thing that catches one's attention, uh, where one senses an opportunity to create play and have some fun? Um, mm-hmm. And this is, you know, I'm really talking mostly in terms of comedic improv, um, although certainly improv can can tackle more serious subjects and intentionally avoid comedy if it wants to right yeah so it's 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 a it's a turn of phrase it's an action Mm -hmm. it's a um any kind of thing that can happen that someone picks up on and builds upon right so i mean every scene would start with an offer so somebody might say good morning daniel and so you know already there's information in play your scene partner thinks your name is daniel and they think it's morning um, they think you have a friendly relationship. They're on a first name basis with you. So these are all these assumptions being made. Um, and maybe they're handing you what looks like a, a mimed cup of coffee, right? Um, and so that that's all an offer. And you can say, you know, good morning, Mark. Or you can say, you know, it's midnight, Mr. Smith. And then suddenly there's a bigger offer in play. So, you know, you're not disputing uh, right. So so it would be bad if we're just going to argue about whether it's morning or midnight. That's not going to be very interesting for anybody. But if I immediately adapt and am shaken by this realization. Oh, my gosh, you're right. It is midnight. I've, I've been working on this project for so long. Right. Then th- then now suddenly we're, we're building something more specific uh, of that reaction. Uh, sorry to go down a specific scene rabbit hole, but. No, no, that was that was very that was very clear. I mean, it made it gave a good example of what an offer is and how it might be built upon or responded to or something like that. Um, and it, and the other thing that's that's interesting that right away, kind of as it, within that example, um, you're you're building some kind of story, yes, or some and and story and and I would say recognizable relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. I think you can't 
you, you know, people fight in improv uh, about whether it's about story or whether it's about character or game. Mm. Um, but really, it has to be about all of them because I think people are uh, naturally wired to create story in their minds. So either you're going to be mindful of that as a performer and, and you know, be, be conscious of where your story of your scene is going or the audience is going to do it whether you want them to or not. And, and you just won't be clued in yeah. to what, what decisions they're seeing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, it's, it's interesting that it's so much about listening. I think, um, you know, seeing what offers are, are being presented, listening to what's happening, and then just having a um, almost an instinctual um, or authentic response in that moment. Yeah. And the, the the one thing I guess I didn't mention so specifically is that m- more important than just, you know, the, the mechanics of saying the words, good morning, Daniel, th- there are also a hundred ways we could say that in language, right? And so one is sarcastic, which clearly indicates you're like an hour late to work today. You know, one is really babying, which means maybe it's your birthday you know, like there's all kinds of mm-hmm. meaning we can suggest and convey just with tone and intonation, right. um, which is really, I, I think, the richer part of improv is, is that subtext and, and playing with that, um, because that's thrilling for an audience to see that level of communication and agreement going on um, where it isn't so clunky and expositional. Right. And so... Um... I guess thinking about the performers in those moments and that um, when you're studying to do to do this, to do improv theater in this way, um, either taking classes or just like rehearsing, practicing, um, what kind of, how do you develop that skill, that skill of listening and, and being in the moment so clearly? Sure. I- I it's I mean it is practice. There are so many exercises we'll do um, that are just about uh, seizing upon, you know, the first most powerful idea that you see or feel in a scene. Um, a lot of it is just practicing through you know through scenes and then you know doing a debrief afterward and having a coach or a director working with you to point out like hey here were other opportunities in that scene or you know, wow, that was really tight. You immediately found something to play with and you built upon it. You know, you were sharing the scene versus steamrolling your scene partner. All of those things that we try and be conscious of when we're playing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's in, in a lot of these conversations that I have been having, um, the thing that I think keeps coming up is just the level of um, experience. Like, you just have to do it and you have to do it a lot and you have to think about what you're doing and reflect on what you're doing and doing it more. Yeah. And I think also it's, you know, finding other people who are in the craft who are doing something that, that is interesting to you Mm -hmm. and, and really looking at their play and breaking it down. Like, why are they able to do that? And what, what skill are they bringing or what attitude or or voice do they bring to the work? Um, and, and finding that in oneself. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems that your work with WIT, you've really developed a community in D.C. around improv theater. It is a tremendous community here. I I could not be more happy. 
Yeah, it's, it is quite impressive. Um, so uh, kind of more details about going into performance when you're performing. Um, how how much do you know before you actually start the performance? Um, you know, in in uh, dance improvisation, we often talk about the score. Like we have a set of parameters or constraints that we know. Sometimes there's more and sometimes there's very few. Um, in music, they might know, you know, you think about certain jazz kind of improv um, they might know the melody line, they might know the structure, they might know the tempo, but a lot of the details are developed and, and expanded upon and explored in performance. Uh, so for you all, is there, is there situations where there's more or less um, kind of constraints or how does that, how do you go about that process? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a wide range of uh, the, the level of structure or sort of predetermined um, tone or style that a show might have. Um, so, you know, w one of the more fluid uh, pieces that, that we've done recently is we did basically a performance that was intended to feel like a dream. So we were intentional about um, allowing sort of echoes and repetition uh, in text into the, the work. Um, we were we gave ourselves permission to be really fluid physically with our bodies in a way that wouldn't necessarily look like, you know, scenic realism. Um, we knew that there would be images and, and metaphors, um, you know, that, that we would have that we wouldn't necessarily explain. Um, basically, we knew it would be weird. We were like, let's make a really weird show. Um, but that feels, you know, vocative, that, that has an emotional... Um, life to it and you know we all dove in and collaborated and the show itself did really feel like a dream we also had uh, I forgot to mention we had percussion that was part of it that we ourselves were creating um, so you know it was it, it was very like surreal avant-garde kind of uh, performance piece mm -hmm. work but then we'll also do a classic uh, long-form improv structure called a herald, which is really, you know, it, it, it's sort of a tight weaving or rather a loose weaving of three different story threads. Each story or sort of conceptual uh, story gets three pulses to it, and it may or may not connect at the end. Um, and, and then we'll do a very structured show. Um, we did a performance uh, last winter, and we're reprising it this winter, called Citizen's Watch, which is essentially a one-act play um, in the style of one of those really dark uh, small-town murders, like uh, the Broadchurch miniseries. Um, so we know that it's essentially a murder mystery. There will be two police investigators and then the rest of the cast will be townspeople. Specifically, what kind of townspeople will improvise, what exactly their relationships are will improvise. Um, uh, oh, and, and a victim, obviously. There's one victim. <laughs> um, so, so like how these characters are woven together and exactly who they are, we won't know. Um, but we'll know that that story begins with a body being discovered and it ends either with a confession or with a failure to um, to apprehend whoever the murderer was. So, yeah. So that's that's really interesting uh, that structure because there's some really clearly defined tight elements of it. 
um, and then there's a lot of room to play within it. Um, I'm wondering, especially because you know, because you, because in this sense, you're working towards a goal, right? You know, there's there's one of these two outcomes. I mean, even within those two outcomes, there's a huge range of what those could be, obviously. Um, but you're aiming, at least you know, somewhere. Um, what happens, or how do you work with when an improv starts feeling like it's losing its way? Like you know where you're going, but you're not sure wh- how you're going to get there, you know, get there from where you are now. Mm. Well, I, hmm. I think that, you know, a, a structure like that Citizens Watch show where there is essentially a, an end point that we know we need to arrive at, that is definitely the exception. Okay. Uh, in improv. Usually we don't know where we're going. Um, and therefore, sort of wherever we're going is the right way. Yeah. Um, I think the worst thing is to feel like um, there's no there's no heat to the scene. There's there are no stakes in play. That's I think when improv starts to feel really um, just sort of thin, like thin soup, you know. Um, and I think usually the answer for that is to invest more, to to care more about something in the scene or sometimes externally you can um, edit the scene or contribute to it in a way that raises the stakes uh, by clarifying information or bringing new information. Um, And that often I I think there's there's an opportunity in improv theater um, to sort of almost step outside the performance, to be a little bit commenty. And you can, you know, if, if the audience is game and you feel like you've got trust with them, you can even acknowledge to them, you know, oh, th- this this scene did not go anywhere. You know, like you can connect with them with that honesty and that vulnerability. And in a way, it gets you a reset or a recharge. Um, you know, I, 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 I would never actually do this in performance, step out of a scene and say that didn't work. But there are ways you can sort of indicate that and edit the the story or the the scenes back to something else earlier that I think the audience perceives as like a course correction or a reset. Um, the, the The other thing that that I think is important in the way we make, especially comedy in improv theater, is that there are no mistakes, um, and that. You know, that's a cliche at first when you're an improv student and you're like, what do you mean there are no mistakes? Of course there are mistakes. But but the way we play with that idea in performance for theater is that if there is a mistake, the best thing you can do is make sure that mistake happens again. Because then it's a pattern. And then the audience, they, they, they see it happen the second time and they're so delighted because they saw it the first time and they lost all faith in you. And now when they see you bold enough to do it on purpose, they, they really do lean back in and they're like, Oh, these guys see everything that I see. Um, because that the worst feeling is for the audience to feel like they're ahead of you, uh, as the performer, like they, they are smarter than you or they understand your work more than you do. Um, 
they don't like that feeling. They want to believe that you're as smart as they are, oh. even though you're not. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, within the dance context, I've certainly been in the situation where, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're dancing on yourself or, or dancing with another person and like, you know, you lose your balance and you fall down. Right. You know, or like I go to lean on someone and we we don't actually connect, but we slip and that slip causes us to kind of fall. And then if you don't do anything with it, then it becomes this moment of like, oh, that didn't work. But if then you like part of the lexicon of the piece becomes this like leaning in and slipping and falling, um, it, it begins to have um, meaning. And I think you're right. The audience sees that kind of... Uh, if you will, mistake. But then when it becomes part of the language of the piece, there's a there's something very delightful about that. That's it. That's it. Exactly. And we, and we talk about it the same way. We talk about what's the vocabulary of the show and, and you know, and, and just going back and reinvesting in it. It, it, it brings up an, another thing, which is, you know, the, the because we're using our bodies and our words and we're actually, you know, simulating human behavior. Um, it's, it's very easy for the audience to see us, us, the performers versus us, the characters and the level to which we're really immersed in a character who is other from ourselves that varies widely, um, from ensemble to ensemble, from performance piece to performance piece, and even within an ensemble from player to player, um, and so that's the sort of other weird ingredient that we're playing with. Often, you know, some improv performers, half of what you enjoy about them is you are seeing their own personality bubbling through in choice after choice. And there's a joy to that kind of open uh, play that they're getting to see. And then other players, you don't see them at all. They're always inside a character, deep, deep inside. And that's you know, that, that's all fine. Both are great, I think, and, and bring something fun to the stage. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It, it, I just, I hadn't even thought of this, but it just reminded me of, uh, there was the television show that was all improv theater for a while. And, um, what was that called? Um, oh, I forget what it was, but, um, there's a show. And then I remember they had the one time they had, um, Robin Williams on as the guest artist kind of coming in and there's all these improv theater people and then Robin Williams and it totally didn't work at all. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it was hysterical because Robin Williams is always hysterical or was always hysterical, mm -hmm. but he did not listen at all. Yeah. He was just himself like barging through this thing. And it was, you know, he's all stream of consciousness and <laughs> like not paying attention to characters or story or plot. It's just like, boom. Yeah. You know, the id was let loose on the stage. Uh -huh. um, and I guess, like, thinking about dance, um, or my experience with improv, like, thinking about mistakes again, for me, the one mistake is when you stop paying attention to your fellow players. Yeah. Right? Like, when you're out there, and, uh, again, I've certainly had the experience where someone, like, is going into a solo, and they're not considering what else is happening. And that idea you mentioned earlier of resetting, like how do you reset in that moment when someone is kind of going off the rails or not paying attention to kind of this larger context and this larger picture that's being formed? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, 
that is maybe in in dance that can happen um easier i don't know just because like you know you can kind of close your eyes and just start moving and it's not um we're not though we always are dealing with relationships it's easier to kind of let them go um and still be in the space i'm not sure i think i think it's about you know what what are the expectations and the relationships among the performers and how much how much trust is there and is the form open enough to allow that kind of sort of solo explosion of energy i, th I think you know when we first learn improv theater it's really so much about sharing it's about you know you say something then they say something then you say something then they say something you you really I think train your muscles of um, co-creating and making sure you're not dominating a piece and also making sure you're not disappearing uh -huh. um, in a piece or in a scene but the more you play I think and the, the more hungry you are for different kinds of experiences I think the more room there is for you know for some reason in tonight's show my character would only speak in large paragraphs you know? and that's just that's who that character was and so the rest of the cast can sort of you know adjust and accommodate it um and as long as that's not happening you know in show after show <laughs> then, then cool you know that's what happened tonight right right yeah it's interesting thinking about like um it, it makes me think about training improvisation um from from a dance perspective and often it starts with um solo work mm. solo improvisation because you've got to find your own movement vocabulary you've got to um or ideally you transcend your training right as dancers we spend so much time learning this certain movement vocabulary whether it's ballet or certain modern techniques or jazz or whatever it is we we try to take on these techniques and then when we start moving that's all we know is these certain vocabularies and um, in improvisational performance we want to kind of um, move beyond them right you know transcend transcend them to move in our own unique way so a lot of times we work or certainly when I teach it I, I start um, moving a lot of uh, solo work to try to get them out of their habitual patterns mm-hmm so I wonder if I'm I'm setting up that that um, the emphasis or or uh, priority of solo work in lieu of ensemble work. It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. We because of the the way we teach is always in groups, um, and we're always I, th I think our first thing is trying to really train that listening skill. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really focus too much on the importance of, you know, any kind of solo energy um, till I think much later in the training process. Um, so the other thing I wanted to just um, touch on is, so we talked a lot about performance and a little bit about training and stuff like that, but I'm curious, cause you know, I was looking of course at Wit's website and stuff and and you go out and do this work in uh, business setting, corporate settings, other settings, and I'm curious, sure, what that, what that, um, how you do that, 
um, what's the end goal of, mm-hmm. of that and how people respond and do they find it helpful within those contexts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we love uh, these organizational training opportunities and that was not always the case. The first time we got hired, uh, I think it was AOL hired us to work with some people and we thought, oh, this will be an okay paycheck. Um, but God, nobody wanted to do the workshop, uh, you know, uh, and we've really reversed our thinking about that for, I think for two reasons. One is we realized for a lot of people who, you know, have really busy lives and busy jobs, this is the only opportunity they're ever going to get to explore these ideas of improv. And we, at, at wit, we think these ideas are really powerful. They're not just about, you know, having, a a good performance or, you know, exploring something uh, in a class, uh, you know, sort of for fun. But it's, there's a level of self-discovery and, and like, uh, like really empowerment and awareness that comes from playing with these ideas. So we love, we love bringing those ideas to people. Um, and the, the other thing is we, we have gotten feedback from people in workplace settings that, we can really change the dynamic of a team. We can help people. I, and this this shouldn't be that remarkable, frankly. But we, we help people see each other more as humans. And there's something about creating an energy of play and of deep listening that engenders empathy and understanding among a group of people. And those ingredients are magical. You know, one drop of empathy in a team can change everything about it. So, you know, we may work with a group for only two or three hours. Um, and the, the moments that we create with them, it's not that, oh, that thing that Sheila said, you know, that the thing she said isn't usually going to be the discovery that, you know, changes the team forever or creates a new product you know, for, for them to sell, it's, it's the experience of going through it. Right. Um, because it's, it's not like work you to improvise with people. You have to set aside, you know, your, your org structure and your job title and whatever petty grudges you have from last week and who ate your lunch out of the, out of the refrigerator. Like all those things have to go away and you have to just meet people human to human at a level of respect and trust and listening. And, you know, once you reset at that energy, you know, it's tough to shake that off and just go back to the old ways. Like we all, we all saw each other in this room. We all really met each other in a different way. Um, and that, that's just a great experience to give to people. Yeah, no, that, that sounds wonderful. I can um, certainly, imagine how that could be really powerful when when a group participates in that and they're all able to kind of you know step into that space and really participate fully uh you know you, know, you said a little bit about um both about how in these situations where you you develop empathy for other people but also you reflect on your own self <clears throat> and something i read maybe it was in one of the inter- another interview with you is that um you know, you said improv has the ability to show you yourself. Yeah. 
And I guess, I guess, you know, we're kind of coming up on the end of our, our time here. But I, I wanted to end with this because I think for a lot of people, they think about improv theater, especially, you know, comic improv theater, that really it's just about being funny. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, you're entertaining people, you're, you're being funny. But, but it's certainly in the way you're talking here and stuff like that. There's a lot of other layers that are going on. Uh, for the performer, either someone in class or someone who's uh, who's you know performing uh, in the theater. So, could you talk a little bit about just that process of like how does doing this work actually um, give you some insight into your own self? Absolutely. Uh, I think the the first lesson in improv, you know, I, I've talked about the importance of listening, um, mm-hmm. and so immediately one gets a sense of whether you're a good listener or not. Um, so that's often the first lesson people get is they realize, oh, I'm a terrible listener. No wonder, you know, my boyfriend is so sick of me or no wonder my boss is always asking me follow up questions or whatever it is, you know. Um, and then beyond that, I think once you've learned to listen, the next really step moving into improv for us is learning to say yes. Um, whatever that idea was that they brought, say yes to it and build upon it versus saying no, shutting them down and introducing your own idea, right? It's, it's playing with what's there. Um, and finding that agreement and that ability to simply say yes, uh, does not come easy. Um, our, our whole culture, I think, uh, maybe the entire planet, I don't know, but certainly Western culture, um, I think we're, we're wired to be cautious and protect ourselves and so the easiest answer is usually no right do you do you want to do this thing no i'm busy right um and and getting to just saying yes uh can be a huge breakthrough for people um and and it opens up your awareness that you know there are a lot more adventures that we can have in our lives not just in an improv class but in our lives uh, if we say yes, and uh, I'm not talking about being reckless and, you know, saying yes to every stupid idea that uh, or dangerous idea that people bring, but still just that power of finding a connection and saying yes and building with someone, um, that is a revelation uh, to many. And it certainly was to me when I started uh, improvising, I was, I would say, a very type A button-down uh, young man, and I thought I had most of the answers that I would ever need mm-hmm. in the world. And when I first touched improv, it really challenged all of those assumptions. And the way it opened up my awareness was a huge gift uh, that, that I'm always grateful for. That's great. That's a, And that's a, a perfect place to end for today. So... Uh, Again, Mark, thank you so much uh, for joining this conversation. Oh, it was a delight to talk about these things. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's as you said right at the beginning. Like we do this thing, and we're we're so immersed in it, um, but then to step back and have to articulate it is sometimes challenging. But also, um, you know, uh, learning you learn a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, great. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Of course, you too, Daniel. Take care. 
So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Chalfant. Again, please check out the show notes for information about how to find Mark out in the world and on the web, as well as links for info about me and the Act React podcast. In the next episode of Act React, I'll be talking with the founding and artistic director of Kothi Dance Theater, Fern Bronson. Fern and I discuss her work, as well as the history of improvisation in West African dance and music. Fern is a fascinating artist and scholar, and I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.